It's June 8th, 2020, and this is Durban, South Africa, yeah? Mm-hmm. All right. And we're going to be summarizing the Isha Panishad, uh, mantras 12 to 14. So I hope you all have Isha Panishad. Mantras 12 to 14. I think what I can do here also, thank you for being patient with me here, by the way. I appreciate that. I had kind of a I had kind of a crazy morning, so I'm not where I normally would be. As far as being prepared. I can't share my screen. Huh? All right. So let's. That's okay. That's okay. Let, let's just go. If everybody has the Isha Panishad, maybe we can chant the mantras together as far as it's possible to chant together on Zoom. Sure. Yes. So let's. Um, Prabhu, if we make you the co host, you could share your screen. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, just, just co-host her, then she can share screen. You should be able to share now. Okay, somehow I lost... Why am I having so much trouble today with all this stuff? All I have with me is your picture. Oh, here we go. Okay, so if I'm going to share screen... Can you see the book cover? Yes. All right. This is the um, original book cover of the Sri Upanishad. I think Jadarani did this painting. So I thought I would, I would show this original book cover. That was... Uh, there were other covers that were also done under Srila Prabhupada's guidance, but this was the first one. Okay. And now I'd like to... Database. So we can chant these together. So mantra 12. Uh, Probably I should sing and you guys should mute and you just sing with me even though you're muted. Otherwise it ends up kind of weird. So andam tamaha pravishanti ye sambuti mupasate tato bhuya irate tamo ya usambuchamrataha. Those who are engaged in the worship of demigods enter into the darkest region of ignorance, and still more so do the worshippers of the impersonal absolute. Anyar evahu sambhavat, anyar ahur asambhavat. Iti It is said that one result is obtained by worshipping the supreme cause of all causes, and that another result is obtained by worshipping that which is not supreme. All this is heard from the undisturbed authorities who clearly explained it. Sambutimcha Venashamcha Yastadvedo Bayam Saha one should know perfectly the personality of Godhead, Sri Krishna, and his transcendental name, form, qualities, and pastimes, as well as the temporary material creation with its temporary demigods, men, and animals. When one knows these, he surpasses death and the ephemeral cosmic manifestation with it, and in the eternal kingdom of God, he enjoys his eternal life of bliss and knowledge. So we're going to go fairly quickly. Uh, we just have we have one hour, right? Rukmini, is that right? We have one hour, so we're going to go fairly quickly through these 
three verses. So we should know that these verses, 12 through 14, basically parallel verses 9 through 11. They're, they're like the same verses. The difference being that 9 through 11 says uh, Gyan, and 12 through 14 say Sambutim and Asambutim. So otherwise, if you take 9, 10, and 11, and you take 12, 13, 14 side by side, which I would suggest you do afterwards, you'll see that they're, they're making the same point, it's just they're making the same point about a different topic. So 9, 10, and 11 are making the point about knowledge and ignorance, and here we have the point about what's absolute and what's not absolute. So just like if you cultivate a 9 through 11, just like if you cultivate the wrong knowledge, it's binding. So in the same way, if you have improper conceptions of the absolute truth, it's also going to be in trouble. Now, we may get frustrated trying for happiness through sense gratification and mundane knowledge, and we look for religion or spiritual life. We say, okay, I want to find something spiritual. So I'm giving the analogy of a bug stuck in a room. I'm sure we've all had experiences that some insect is stuck in our room. It can't go out. So 9, 10, and 11, we compare to a bug trying to get out of a room through going through a mirror, which is trying to go through mundane knowledge. But now in these verses 12, 13, 14, we're going to think of a bug trying to get out of a room through a window that has a screen in it. So it really, the window screen really looks like the outside. The bug can see the outside through the window screen. The bug can feel the outside through the screened window. But uh, the bug can smell the outside through the screen window, but the bug cannot get outside through the screen window. It has to go out, the window has to be open, or the bug has to go through an open door, it's stuck. And so false religions are like that. We could say that material solutions are like a mirror. This material world is considered a reflection. But these false religions are like, they're like a screen window. And, and I'm sure we've all seen bugs that just uh, insist on trying to get out through the screen rather than uh, letting us save them. So we have uh, materialistic religion, and materialistic religion Prabhupada is talking about here as demigod worship. It, it's interesting, of course, because in the West, at least when Srila Prabhupada came and translated the Isopanishad, there weren't practically anybody worshipping demigods in the West. But uh, worshipping God for material gain, with the idea of wanting to go to heaven, uh, the idea of I'm worshipping God because I want to go to higher planets where I can enjoy. And I, we could say pretty confidently that the vast majority of religious practice in the West when Srila Prabhupada came, and indeed in much of the world today, is in that vein. That I want to go to heaven so I can enjoy. And I'm worshipping God with that in mind. I'm worshipping God with the idea that he's going to make my life very nice. And it's interesting, yesterday I was speaking about vandanam, or prayer, and one of the participants asked, why is it that religious people who are praying to God still have problems in life? So this mood that my, my purpose in going to God is so that he's going to remove all of my problems. And this sort of mood is generally either just regular karmakanda, where I'm trying to enjoy the world by being a good person. I, it's like, when I was a kid, I really felt I had life figured out. And the way I had life figured out is if you're really good, you know, if you're really, really good, if you get all A's, A pluses in all of your classes, and you don't cause trouble, then you can do whatever you want. And it, it worked quite well, in fact, that generally, 
generally. I had some teachers that even if I was an A-plus student, they were still very controlling. But in most cases, when the teachers figured out that I was an A-plus student, they gave me more freedom than they gave the other students. And my parents had this idea, which wasn't exactly correct, but they had this idea that I was kind of a perfect kid and I was you know, a really, really good kid and that they could absolutely trust me. Again, that wasn't exactly the truth. But they had, I projected this. And because I projected this, my parents gave me a lot of freedom for me to be not such a perfect kid (laughs) and not always so so good. So I kind of figured this out. And this is uh, what the mundane religionists are trying to do. What do they want to do in heaven? They want to just simply have unrestricted enjoyment of their senses and they're thinking that if they're really properly behaved then they'll they'll get to do that and so these religionists whether they're literally demigod worshipers or whether they're worshiping god with the idea of that i'm going to go to heaven it's the same thing because when i'm worshiping the demigods I'm, i'm worshiping the demigods thinking they're going to bring me to heaven they're going to solve all of my problems So it's a similar thing. I mean, we would definitely say that worshiping God for material things, worshiping the personality of Godhead for material things is far more likely to purify you. But this conception that, you know, there's a transactional business relationship between me and the person I'm worshiping so I can go to heaven. And these people tend to be very sectarian. Now, it's interesting to talk about sectarianism in regard to Uh, these verses because these verses are saying that if you have the wrong form of worship you're really in trouble so somebody might legitimately ask isn't that sectarian well it's not because Shriya Upanishad has no problem with there being varieties of ways of worshiping the real God (laughs) that that that's totally fine but this is talking about worshiping something that's not God as God. So these demigod worshippers, these so-called religionists, as Prabhupada would say, they tend to be very sectarian. My way is the only way. Everybody else is going to hell. And they tend to be pious people. They tend to be what we would call good people, decent people. And they're wanting to please a demigod, or they're worshipping God as if he were a demigod. They're worship, you know, they may not literally have like a deity of Indra, or a deity of Thor or something on their altar or Zeus. But even if they're worshipping God, they're worshipping him like he's the king of the heavenly planets. And he's going to fulfill all their desire. So it's, it's interesting because the names of the demigods, many of them can refer to God, like we have the word Agni in the Ishopanishad at the end, which Prabhupada is translated as as powerful as fire. The Lord is as powerful as fire. But one might be saying Agni, thinking about a demigod who's the god of fire. And in the same way, one can be saying the name of God, but thinking of him like he's a demigod. So uh, the motive of these religionists is very selfish. And therefore, their religion is not bhakti. So they're trying to please Krishna but they're trying to please Krishna to get something from him. And we all know how this feels. We all know how it feels when somebody is nice to us, trying to please us, but they want something. And we all know how it feels when we're doing that. You know, when I go into a store and I ask the person who works in the store, oh, excuse me, sir, or excuse me, ma'am, can you please show me where the hammers are? So... I'm being very nice and polite to the person who works in the store because I want them to help me. Now, I may also be nice and polite because I genuinely care about my fellow human beings, but I want them to help me. And if they don't help me, I will probably get irritated. In other words, I'm not being nice to them just because I want to be nice to my fellow human beings. If I say, can you please show me where the hammers are? And the person says, why should I help you? Right, is the end then I, I'm going to feel offended that how dare this, this employee in the shop, you know, not, not help me. So this is the, the mood, one way you can tell that you're treating God like a demigod, or one is worshipping the demigods, is when such persons don't get what they want, they go away. 
If I go in a store and say, do you have any hammers? They say, no, we don't. I leave the store. And when they get what they want, they also go away. So I go in the store, I find my hammers, I pay for them, and I leave. I don't keep up, generally speaking, a relationship with the people in the store. I've gone there just for the purpose of getting something what I that I want. And bhakti is very different. Bhakti is just love that doesn't have any motive behind it other than the happiness of the beloved. Uh, the, and people engage in worshipping the demigods or worshipping, again, God as if he's a demigod. They, they're not usually interested in detachment from the world. That, that's not their, their purpose is to, to enjoy the world. And uh, then there are spiritual ap- uh, aspirations. So we talked about those who want, who worship God or a demigod to try to be a big enjoyer of the world. That is a false religion. It's not real religion. It's not parod dharma. It, it has you beating your, your wings against the window screen. <laughs> you know. And then even more so would be those who have a spiritual aspiration to merge into the Brahman effulgence. Now, as being very, very different from the demigod worshippers, these people tend to be very interested in detachment, equilibrium. They want happiness beyond the body and the mind. Uh, however, we find that many of the modern impersonalists are often more degraded in their habits than the religious people. And I, I've seen this personally. I've seen the spiritual and not religious, and the religious but not spiritual, which is kind of what we could be talking about here. The religious but not spiritual, they want to go to heaven, they see God as a demigod. The spiritual but not religious, they just like, oh, everything is spiritual, and I do my yoga. I have my crystals, I chant my mantras, but I don't accept that there's a personal God. And they can be, the real impersonalists are very austere. They're, uh, recently I, I met this impersonalist, uh, Lady Sanyasi, Sanyasini, she was from South India, and obviously very knowledgeable, I mean she knew the Vedas inside and out and backwards and forwards and and a a very very pleasant person as well. And I asked her, uh, what kind of a family are you from? Because I was was so impressed with her knowledge of Shastra that I I was wondering if she had been taught the Shastra from a young age. I said, were you from a... Especially she was from South India. I knew that. And she said, Sanyasis don't talk about their, their families. They have no families. They belong to the world. And I thought, well, our, I didn't say anything, but I thought our personalist sannyasis will say something about their, their family. But, you know, these, they have this mood that we're detached, we're not interested in anything in the world. But again, there are some real spiritualists who are, who are very austere and who follow vows and who are as or more pious than the demigod worshippers. But the modern impersonalists tend not to be. The modern impersonalists tend to have this view of, well, everything is spiritual, so my smoking marijuana is spiritual, and my extramarital affairs are spiritual, and everything is spiritual. And so we have this, this very interesting verse in the Ishapanishad, right, where uh, that those engaged in the worship of demigods enter into the darkest region of ignorance, and still more so to the worshippers of the impersonal absolute. So that's, you know, pretty strange, uh, pretty strange concept. So we also have, which we'll get to in a moment, then we have this idea of different destinations. So our main idea here is that there's pseudo-sanatan dharma, there's false sanatan dharma. So wanting to go to heaven is false sanatan dharma. You're basically just a materialist. It may look like religion, but you're not. And then, wanting to merge in the impersonal Brahman is also Sudhasanathan Dharma. It's devoid of the idea of service. It's devoid of the idea of love. Then we have the uh, the concept in these verses of different destinations. So, Brahman and Paramatma are dependent on Bhagavan Krishna. They're, They're aspects of the absolute truth. So if you take them as aspects of the absolute truth, you can call them absolute truth. But if you take them alone, 
they become relative truth. And this is a fascinating concept, which we don't have time to go into in depth, but I, I think if you can just meditate on this for a moment, Brahman and Paramatma are the absolute truth. Brahmeti, Paramatmeti, Bhagavaniti, Subjate. You can call the absolute truth Brahman, Paramatma, and Bhagavan. When they're seen as part of the, of the whole absolute truth, they are absolute truth. But as soon as you start separating them and saying the absolute truth is only Brahman or the absolute truth is only Paramatma, then you're, you're in a relative conception. You're no longer in an absolute conception. And the reason for that is that rasa exists only in Bhagavan. There's no rasa in, in Brahman and Paramatma. You know, which, which is why Prabhupada gives the, 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 makes the point that the demigod worshippers are better because at least when you're on the heavenly planets you have some pseudo-rasa, you have some body and you have relationships whereas when you're in Brahman you don't have any of those which is kind of a reversal of our normal uh, presentation of philosophy so there are many names of God we're not, we're not sectarian, we're not saying that the Hare Krishna movement, that, Hare, that Krishna is the only name of God, we're not saying that Mahaprabhu's movement is the only way to attain God. There are many names of God. There are many paths to reach Him. And there are also many paths and many names that take you someplace else. And it's, it's just like that there are many, uh, not right now of course, but generally there are many airlines and many routes to take you to a specific destination. I mean, I've been pretty much traveling constantly for the last 14 years. And if I wanted to go somewhere, suppose I wanted to go to Durban, so I could find many different airlines that would take me there. And I could find some routes that would be, you know, 40 hours, and some routes that might be 12 hours. I might find a nonstop flight. Maybe that would be 9 or 10 hours. I could also find ones that would take me all over with some kind of, of stops. I'd find them at all different prices. I'd find them offering all different levels of amenities. Right, I could go first class, which I've never done. Uh, no, actually one time someone bought me a first class ticket. Uh, so you could go first class, you know, in a big fancy seat and, and things like that. Or you could go, you know, economy and be all squished up in the back. So there's many ways by which you can reach a destination. So in a similar way, there's many, many ways that we can go back to Godhead, that we can know God and love Him. And if I think I'm, I'm in the only plane, you know, if I'm flying on South African Airways, and I think, huh, I'm the only one going to South Africa, then I'm, I'm a fool. There's a lot of other airlines going, and they're going in a lot of different routes. But that doesn't mean that every plane on the earth is going to Durban, South Africa. So those two things are not the same. So if we're trying to know a personal God and we're trying to love a personal God and we're achieving that knowledge of a personal God and that love of God as a person, then that's a bona fide religion. And Srila Prabhupada would often say, he said that to my father in 1974, and he will often say that, if through your religion you are knowing God and loving Him, then that is perfect. And Prabhupada would even say, if you're reading Bhagavad Gita but you're not knowing and loving God, then it's a waste of time. But we can also say that there are paths that are not even aiming towards knowing God and loving God. That's not where they're going. You know, it's, it's not that everything that claims to be a religion or everything that claims to be spiritual even has that as their destination or as, as their goal. You know, if we went to all the religious ceremonies on the planet going on and, uh, and do you want to know and love God, many of them would say, No. I'm really not interested in knowing and loving God. I want salvation, or I want to go to heaven. So Ishapanishad is, so those are relative paths. If one wants bhukti and mukti, if one's, which Rupa Goswami compares to being haunted by witches, if one wants to enjoy the world through religion, or if one wants to be saved through religion, those are relative religious paths. And the object of their worship is also relative. They're not absolute. Now, it's interesting that the Ishapanishad tells us that we should know both the relative and the absolute, like we should know both knowledge and ignorance. Uh, we were talking about this in um, a Wednesday class the other week, 
with Prithu Maharaj, when Lord Vishnu comes to Prithu Maharaj, Prithu Maharaj tells the Lord what he doesn't want. He says, I don't want to go to heaven. I don't want to merge into the Brahman. Same things here. What I do want is to always hear your glories, and I do want to massage your lotus feet. That's what I do want. And many times in life, it's just as important to know what we don't want as what we do want. There's many self-help gurus, etc., who will say, make a to-do list, but also make a not-to-do list. <laughs> you know, that sometimes, sometimes knowing what we don't want to do, you know, is just as important. So why do we want to know both the relative and the absolute? Well, we want to be able to distinguish between gross materialism, materialism that claims to be very advanced, mundane religion, inferior spiritual paths, and pass to the supreme cause of all causes, so we can make intelligent decisions. You know, Indrajimana Swami tells a very funny story. He was traveling with Sri Prahlad, and they had been given vouchers for travel. So uh, they went to the airport, and they were going to get their ticket. They went up to the ticket counter, and they presented their vouchers. We'd like to get a flight. And the... the, uh, the airline employee says, where do you want to go? And they look at each other and said, where are we going? <laughs> because they were traveling so frequently, they had forgotten where they were going. So one has to be able to distinguish. Do I want to fly to Durban or do I want to fly to Dubai? You know, and sometimes you find, there, there was a story, I don't know, within the last year or so, of some airline that put a woman on the wrong flight because where there were two places that had similar names. Like I know where I, when I lived in New Jersey, there's a place called Dover, New Jersey, but you know, there's also a Dover in the UK. And so, if, you know, I'm going to Dover, but where, which, which one are you going to? So one has to be able to distinguish what's a path that's going to take me to the absolute truth, what's a path that's going to take me to God, and what's a path that's going to take me someplace else. So I need to know both. I need to know both. So that's one reason I need to know both, so I can figure out what's the right path and what's the wrong path. We can think about this even, you know, when we're we're traveling someplace and we want to be able to distinguish what's the right road to get to our destination, what's the wrong road. You know, many times when we're driving someplace and we're someplace we haven't been before and we're not so sure about it, and we have to be able to say, oh, you know, that's the landmark. So we're on the right road, or wait a minute, I haven't seen any of the landmarks, so we must be on the wrong road. Another reason we want to know both the relative and the absolute, and this is a really fun reason, and this is a a reason that I've personally put a lot of time into, and in fact, the BBT Africa, Krishna Willing, will be publishing a book that Kamala Sita Devi Dasi and I have been working on for several, several, several years, about how to meditate on Krishna both in his eternal pastimes and his pastimes of creating the material world, his pastimes and his glories in the material energy. So that's another reason why we want to know both the relative and the absolute. I want to know how Krishna is dancing on the hoods of Kaliya, and I want to know how Krishna is the light of the sun. I, I want to know how Krishna is stealing the butter and giving it to the monkeys, and I also want to know of how, how Krishna is the ocean among all the bodies of water. I want to know how Krishna is the fire of my digestion. I want to know how Mother Yasoda sees the universal form in his mouth, and I want to know how Krishna is digesting my food. So, because I'm living and working in the world, and I'm primarily conscious of things in the world. I'm primarily conscious you know, of my, of my phone. Okay, Krishna says he's the light in all luminous objects. Well, there's the light of my phone. Well, that's also Krishna. And if I just try to be conscious of Krishna in Goloka Vrindavan, if I just try to meditate always on, you know, Krishna's rasa dance with the gopis and his playing games with the coward boys and stealing butter, it's, it's going to be very difficult to function in this world. I still have to do things like brush my teeth. and you know. I, but if I'm conscious that everything I do, my ability to brush my teeth, 
the taste of the toothpaste, right? My my all these things that they're all Krishna. How Krishna's manifest there. So I want to know the absolute and the relative in that way. So I can meditate on Krishna. I can be absorbed in Krishna, and I also want to know the relative and the absolute. So I can use everything in Krishna's service. So I know how to use my body in Krishna's service. So I know how to use my mind in Krishna's service. So I know how to use, you know, whatever, my bicycle, my car, my telephone, my toothbrush, you know, whatever. So I know how to use that in Krishna's service. Because you see that uh, there's a lot of religious or spiritual philosophies that either say everything is God. God is what we call imminent. He's everything but he doesn't have any separate existence. All right, then I can see God as the light of the sun, and I can see God as my ability and my digestive fire, but I can't see God as dancing on Kali's hoods, and I can't use my toothbrush in God's service because there's no God to use it in the service of. Or you have religions who talk about just God is separate, here's the world, the world is all nasty, the world is all evil, The world is all terrible, and, you know, I'm going to forget the world, I'm going to take vows of silence, I'm going to just eat bread and soup for the rest of my life, and I'm going to worship this transcendent God. Well, the problem with that is that I can no longer see God in this world. I can't see him in the light of the sun. I can't see him in my digesting my austere food. And, again, I can't use anything in his service because everything is separate from him. So this knowing the relative and the absolute, it allows us to distinguish what's bona fide religion and what's not. It allows us to meditate on Krishna both in his pastimes in the spiritual world and his work in the material world and allows us to use everything in the service of the Lord. So if we're going to overview mantras 12 through 14 in a very summary way, and I'll put this into the chat window. So if we're going to just simply summarize these three verses, we would say Mantra 12 explains that materialistic religion is detrimental and transcendent religion. So materialistic religion, this means of the demigods, and transcendent religion without bhakti is even more dangerous than materialistic religion. In other words, we would prefer that people be materialistic religionists than that they be uh, impersonalists without any bhakti. Mantra 13 is is defining the difference between the relative and the absolute, and Mantra 14 directs us to to understand both. So if we're going to summarize just Mantra 12, uh, we'd say that the the Bhagavad Gita says the demigods are objects of worship for those whose faith in the mode of goodness. But here we learn that if we go to the demigods independent of Krishna, wanting just material benedictions, we're going to forget ourselves. But if we seek the spiritual and transcendent only in the form of the Brahma Jyoti, it's more dangerous because we're not going to find any satisfaction for the soul. Uh, the Adyatma superseditit will be absent. So we could, uh, a little catchphrase would be, uh, materially here, we'll give you this as well. Materialism is bad, pseudo-religion is worse, a wolf is dangerous, and a wolf dressed like a sheep is even more dangerous. So materialism, this is our little uh, our little summary mantra for mantra 12. <laughs> materialism is bad, pseudo-religion is worse, a wolf is dangerous, and a wolf dressed like a sheep is even more dangerous. So making the comparison to mantra 9 which talks about knowledge and ignorance. So both mantras are describing types of people who are opposed to the Ishivasya principle of mantra 1. Mantra 9 has explained how both ignorant and intellectual materialists are doomed, although so-called intelligentsia is actually worse off. And mantra 12 says that demigod worshippers are also destined for ruination, but even worse off are the impersonalists. So let's contrast demigod worship or impersonalism and Krishna Bhakti. So first we'll look at surrender versus speculation. 
So Krishna Bhakti, if we're really going to understand Krishna, we have to surrender. Otherwise, through negation, we'll have an incomplete idea of the Absolute. So one is speculation, one is surrender. Then there's temporary versus permanent. So both the demigod worship and impersonal realization are going to give us limited and temporary results, whereas Krishna Bhakti gives us permanent results. Material versus spiritual. So the planets of the demigods are all within the material world, and therefore their subjects, Abrahma to Abhuvana Lokal Punar Avartin Arjuna, Mamupecha to Kuntaya, Punar Janma Navijite. The material planets are all temporary, they're all subject to death, and they're within, as Prabhupada writes, within this dark shell, unlike Krishna's abode. Uh, we can look at cheating versus truth. So they're impersonalists who claim to be avatars, they concoct philosophy through a society of cheaters and cheated, which the governments, the modern governments can't stop this because they don't, can't distinguish what is real and false religion. And we can also contrast real knowledge and detachment. So real knowledge and detachment can only arise from devotional service to Krishna. Why? Because we're getting rasa, we're getting a higher taste. So as sometimes these people, whether they're the materialistic religionists or the impersonalists, they may try to make a show of devotional service through philanthropic work. Uh, we're not opposed to philanthropic work, but if someone is going to say, you know, Philanthropic work is bhakti. Uh, you can certainly help poor people to please Krishna, but helping poor people in and of itself is not bhakti. Uh, but the people, these false religionists and the, the impersonalists, they don't really come to the standard. They don't surrender to a bona fide spiritual master. Huh? So let's look now at... Uh, we, first we overview 12 through 14 in general, then we just looked at 12, now we're just going to look at Mantra 13. So in summary, Mantra 12 explained that both worship of the dependent, demigods, and the absolute impersonal Brahman can lead to bondage. Mantra 13 explains that one's achieve a different result when his understanding of the absolute is guided by a dira, or a sober person. So if we want to achieve something different than materialistic religion or impersonalism, we have to have the guidance of a dira. And again, we're looking at the similarity between Mantra 13 and Mantra 10. And again, the difference is Vijaya and Sambhavat and Avijaya and Asambhavat. So there's a difference between what's supreme and what's not supreme. So how do we discover the Absolute Truth? Well, first of all, we talked about there's different destinations. Those who worship the demigods or who want to go to material heaven, those who want to go to Brahman, those who want to worship Krishna, they end up in different places. Yeah. And we learn the real truth in Parampara. So Prabhupada writes about how the Lord reestablished the Parampara in Arjuna because he was a great devotee. Uh, but there's so many commentaries on the Bhagavad Gita by people who don't accept Krishna. And it's kind of absurd, you know, here Krishna speaks the Bhagavad Gita and I'm going to write a commentary on the Bhagavad Gita but I don't accept that Krishna is the Supreme Lord. Sri Bhagavan Vacha. <laughs> uh, the Sri means the beautiful, effulgent, blessed Bhagavan, the Supreme Lord, the Supreme Personality of Godhead says. And if they're going to say, well, this Sri Bhagavan Vacha is not God, and he shows his universal form in chapter 11, so what is the use of that? Uh, this is all focused on this word dira. And then the worship of the Supreme Cause is very important. And uh, Srila Prabhupada makes, uh, as he does in many, many places, he establishes that Lord Krishna is the supreme cause, and he establishes this by quoting from the Shastra. So he quotes the Shruti. Shruti means the Vedic literatures that have existed since the beginning of creation. He uh, quotes various uh, Upanishads. If you have a printed version of Ishopanishad, that would be on page 95. Then he quotes Smriti, Smriti is the portion of the Vedas that's written by sages. The Shruti has no author. So Prabhupada quotes uh, Moksha Dharma from the Mahabharata and Varaha Purana on the top of page 96. He quotes Brahma Samhita and the Bhagavad Gita on page 96. He quotes the Vedanta Sutra on page 97 in the second paragraph. And then he quotes Srimad Bhagavatam. All to show that Krishna is the absolute truth. So we're not just saying Krishna is the absolute truth because we like Krishna, because he's wonderful, but it's confirmed by Shastra. 
And of course, great devotees do worship Krishna just because they love Krishna. The devotees in Vrindavan, they don't care if Krishna is the absolute truth. That's not what's motivating them to worship him. At the same time, those same devotees in Vrindavan can uh, come and take birth on earth and explain philosophy. You know, our acharyas are all residents of Vrindavan, and they come and they explain philosophically on the basis of Shastra that Krishna is the absolute truth. And Prabhupada gives the example of pouring water on the root of a tree. That if you pour water just on the leaves, you know, if you're giving a little bit of water to each leaf, that's, you're not going to have the same effect as if you water the root. And as far as purification, so those in passion ignorance can hardly become purified. It, it's just not possible. And it's a very important point, which we don't have time to get into in depth today, but that it's Krishna who removes this passion ignorance from the heart. That this is the science of bhakti is that the living entity does not remove the passion ignorance in the heart by their own endeavor. I mean, it's certainly possible to move from ignorance to passion and from passion to goodness by one's own endeavor, by what one eats, by with whom one associates, but to be fully free from passion ignorance by one's own endeavor is very difficult. The modes are always vying for supremacy, and we see that even if we can situate ourselves primarily in a higher mode, we may be hit by these waves of these lower modes. So in bhakti, when we worship the absolute, we do get purified by the grace of the Lord from passion and ignorance. Okay, now going on to mantra 14. So the summary of mantra 14, mantras 12 and 13 explain that one who conducts worship of the improper object or with the improper conception will not achieve spiritual emancipation. And the mantra 14 says we have to know both the material and spiritual energies properly in their respective positions in order to achieve liberation. Now, Prabhupada emphasizes in his purport and in most of his preaching that material knowledge is not sufficient. That one has to go beyond material knowledge and one has to know the spiritual. He has to, we have to know clearly Lord Krishna and his name, fame, qualities, and pastimes in addition to the material world. And we find that most religious systems have no idea of the name, form, qualities, and pastimes of God. They, they just don't have a clue. And if I don't know God, then how am I going to love him? It, it's sort of ridiculous. It's, I, I give the analogy, you know, that some girl comes home and she says, Mommy, Daddy, I'm in love, I'm in love. And they say, oh, oh, who is the boy? Oh, I don't know his name. Oh, where does he live? Oh, I, I don't know. And who's his family? I don't know. What's his job? I don't know. What does he look like? I don't know. But I love him. You know, so it's, a, it's an absurdity. So people are going to talk about, I love God, I love God. They don't know anything about him. So Prabhupada emphasizes knowing the spiritual. And he says, to conquer the problems of life that material science has advanced in so many ways, but hasn't been able to deal with the fundamental problems of life. And Prabhupada talks about the six stages of the body, you know, birth, growth, producing byproducts, remaining for some time, dwindling, and finally going away. And nobody can do anything about this. Everybody dies. And, you know, one of the interesting things during this pandemic is that many people, not even just devotees of Krishna, but many people are making the point that, you know, folks, everybody dies. This concept that, and I'm not saying we shouldn't take precautions when there are diseases. Obviously, we should take precautions when there are diseases. But this, this concept that somehow or other we're going to be able to conquer death, that we're, by dealing with this one particular disease, we're going to be able to conquer death. It's absurd. Everybody's going to get sick from something or another, and everybody's going to die. And material scientists have not been able to stop this. They've not been able to make the world deathless. You know, nobody gets smallpox anymore. I, I still have the marks from my smallpox vaccine. But more people are getting cancer. You know, and then there's some new disease. This, this uh, COVID-19 is a new disease. So even if you could, even if material scientists found a way to counter every existing disease, guess what? Some new disease is going to pop up. And we find this in our own personal lives. You know, we're, we're working to solve all of the problems in our lives. And then all of a sudden we have a new problem that we didn't have before. 
you know, I'm, I'm staying here right next to my daughter, and uh, she was teaching Gurukul on the internet, on, on Zoom, which, which was nice in some ways. It meant that she didn't have to leave her home and go to the school. So, you know, she appreciated that. And then school was over, and she's like, okay, I don't have to teach on Zoom anymore, which was also difficult. It was difficult to correct the kids' work. It was difficult to tell if the kids were paying attention. I was teaching a, a Zoom class once a week, and sometimes while I'd be teaching, I'd see some of the kids had their, their headphones in their ears, you know, and they're going, well, I'm teaching, and I'm thinking they're definitely not listening to a word I said. They're <laughs> listening to something else. So, you know, there was... <laughs> So that was that problem was over. I don't have to try to teach class by Zoom anymore. And then something broke in her car, you know. And then she had to take the car to the dealership and get the try to get the car fixed. And isn't it always like that? We think, okay, you know, I have this and this problem, and I fix this problem, and then another problem comes up, and then you think, okay, now I'm going to fix that problem, and then another problem comes up. Any of any of us who own a home. Right or who rent a home, it's like that, isn't it? You know, you you fix the plumbing and then there's some problem with the the door, and you fix the door and then there's some problem with this, or you know, or in a relationship it's like that. When we have long-term relationships with people, and you know, maybe you study all the books about relationships and take all the courses, but then there's always some problem, some misunderstanding that wasn't there before. So materialistic scientists, they're not going to, just by material knowledge, we're not going to solve all the problems of life. So to achieve real freedom, we have to go beyond the material planets. Material planets have different, they have different time scales. You might live there for a very, very long time. But it's not going to give us freedom. Just having a nice life for a longer amount of time. It's, it doesn't work. If we want real freedom, as Prabhupada says in the first canto, that the need of the soul is to have real freedom, to be in the real light of the spirit. For that, we have to go beyond any relative material conceptions. And we have to focus on the spiritual. Now, Srila Prabhupada's purport here and his main thrust was emphasizing, in addition to the spiritual, you have to know the material. Why? Because he's writing to a materialistic society. Prabhupada was coming from India, where people were very materialistic. When he left, he was asking people, you know, please give me one of your children to train in spiritual life, and they weren't interested. He came to the West, where people was, were materialistic. So Prabhupada did not emphasize, you have to be expert in material things. He emphasized, you have to be expert in the spiritual so even in a verse like this, where the Upanishad is saying, you have to know the relative and the absolute, Prabhupada say, hey, you have to know the absolute. You have to know the absolute. You have to know the absolute. However, when Prabhupada came to America, most of his early disciples were uh, what Prabhupada would often call the hippies. They usually called themselves the counterculture. And these were people who had rejected most of materialistic life. Maybe they dropped out of school, they dropped out of work, you know, they weren't interested in marriage and family and so forth. And those people joined Prabhupada and started the Hare Krishna movement with Srila Prabhupada. And so they were so happy to hear that, well, you've got to focus on the spiritual, you've got to focus on the spiritual, you've got to focus on the spiritual. And I think many of us in the beginning forgot that Ishapanishad says, Hey, you have to know both. You have to know both. So Srila Prabhupada was making a very reasonable assumption that the people to whom he was preaching were already focused on the material and he needed them to add the spiritual. And uh, then after some time in ISKCON, we realized that, wait a minute, we also have to add back the material. <laughs> we have to add back the relative. Uh, Prabhupada says a devotee should be daksha. He shouldn't be callous toward the world, thinking, well, I know everything of devotional service. He talks about this in 1976 in Mumbai, and I don't need to know everything of the world. He said the ideal brahmachari should know uh, something of everything and everything of something. And if we don't know the material world, again, as we said previously, 
we won't be able to appreciate and relate to Krishna in the world, nor will we be able to use the world properly in Krishna's service. We won't be expert. We'll lose that devotional quality of expert. So we should know something of everything and everything of something and have this balance between knowing the absolute and the relative. So in in summary, looking all together at verses 12 through 14, for our progress in bhakti to be effective, we have to distinguish between worship of the absolute and the relative while honoring all genuine forms and names of the absolute. And then our chanting and our practice will bring us to the realization of ourself and to our relationship with Lord Sri Krishna. So we have a little bit of time here for questions, comments. Uh, we can do it in the chat window. We can, uh, you can unmute yourself however you'd like to do it. Okay. So we have in the chat window two questions. Could you explain the journey of the subtle body for being still on the material platform at the time Lord Brahma's life comes to an end? Well, when Brahma's life comes to an end, we give up our gross bodies, but we uh, and the subtle bodies merge also into the subtle elements, and it's just the soul that enters into the body of Mahavishnu. And again, when we you can think of it something like when we go into deep sleep, we are unaware even of our mind and false ego. So in dreams we still have some kind of fractured, distorted conception of our subtle body. We may dream about our family or our home, but it's in some strange way. But in deep sleep, we don't, we don't have that. So entering into the body of Mahavishnu is like deep sleep. And the difference between the words manifestation, incarnation, and expansion when in relation to Lord Krishna, oh my goodness, that, for that I would refer you to the Chaitanya Charitamrita and especially in the descriptions in the Majalila chapter 20 through 20 something where Mahaprabhu is instructing Sanatana Goswami and there's a very very long and detailed explanation there there's also a summary of that in the teachings of Lord Chaitanya Okay, what do we most need to know about the material that we missed? I don't understand that question. What material that you missed? I'm, I'm sorry. I don't understand. If, if you could clarify. If Marla, if you could clarify. The material that we missed. What material that you missed? I don't know if by material you mean like the material world or by material you mean something that some material I have, I'm, I'm, I'm confused. Oh, oh, oh. I said Prabhupada taught us about spiritual, not material, that later is come, so we needed to know material too. What did we miss? Uh, Shri Prabhupada certainly taught us about the material world. I mean, Vardashram is about the material world, the Bhagavatam talking about the planets is the material world. I mean, the mood of the devotees in the early days of ISKCON was I don't need to I don't need to have any expertise in the world. I don't need to know about how the world works. I don't need to develop a career, which is kind of strange because Varna Dharma is all about developing a career. But you know, I don't need to develop a career, I don't need material expertise, I just need to chant Hare Krishna. We had a mood that if you go to Mangalartik and you chant your sixteen rounds then you're qualified to do anything. You don't need to study how to do something. And for many of us, we kind of needed to go back and say, wait a minute, you know, we, we also do need to be able to function in the world. We, we need to know how to become expert in the functioning of the world. And I think now ISKCON is becoming, in general, much more balanced in that regard, though not entirely. There's still a lot of preaching that being a renunciate, living in a temple, is a spiritually superior position to being somebody working in the world. But there, there is much more that we're going to uh, Isha Upanishad, Mantra 14, that we're starting, we're starting in Iskand 
much more so to get into Ishapanishad Mantra 14. We do have a swing, I do also see a swing happening in ISKCON towards materialism. So I see that as well, that, you know, Ishapanishad is telling us to be balanced. The Shastras are balanced. Prabhupada was coming to a materialistic society and preaching, hey, you have to have the spiritual. We heard him and we went all the way, you know, I'm going to forget about the material. And then I do see a swing all the way back. So I see a lot of devotees where they spend a, a tiny fraction of their time on their sadhana. They hardly teach their children about Krishna consciousness. And the vast majority of their time and energy is going just into their, their you know, bodily comforts and their bodily existence. And the education for their children is you know, 90% on material academics instead of having this holistic view of, of knowing both uh, Sambhutim and Asambhutim. So I hope that answers your question. I hope I clarified. I uh, thank you for bringing that up. It showed me that I, I wasn't very clear in my presentation. So those, those sort of questions signaled to me that I needed to explain things better, and I, I appreciate that. Anybody else? Yeah, yeah. I have a question. Yes, you okay. <laughs> um, I've been thinking about this relative and absolute and I was think, thinking that our negative or not so spiritual thoughts and emotions are put on the relative platform. And I was wondering how do we surrender those in a way that doesn't feel superficial? Uh, negative thoughts, negative emotions. How, how do we practically apply the process of surrender? Wow, what a wonderful question. I, I think that's a kind of question that we could probably have another few classes on. You know, how, what do we do with our negative thoughts and our negative emotions? So I'm going to give you a very brief answer, in the interest of time. Uh, but but this is this is a topic that's very deep and very important, because as long as we're in this body, as long as we have a subtle and a gross body, then thoughts and emotions that are contrary to Krishna consciousness, we'll call negative thoughts and emotions that, are, are going to be coming into our awareness over and over and over again. Krishna says that we should be like the ocean, where the rivers are coming in, but the ocean is not effective, affected. And that is the main allegory for how we surrender these material thoughts and emotions, which are going to be flowing through our bodies and minds uh, over and over again. You know, we recognize that they're part of the material energy and we don't, we don't let them affect us. We don't hate them. They're part of Krishna's energy. We don't hate them. But at the same time, we don't grasp them. So this is to become free from attachment and aversion. And this is how we surrender them. That Krishna, they're yours. These, these thoughts, the mind is a machine made by the Lord. These thoughts that the mind are generating, they're not me. I, I the soul, am not generating these thoughts. The mind is generating them. I, the soul, am not generating these various emotions. That's coming from the material energy. One can think of it like uh, if you're reading a book or you're watching a film, and the actors, the director, the writers... They're generating thoughts and feelings that are not ours. They're just, they're just not mine. And so I can see like that, that this material nature, it's, it's some kind of a, a, a parody of reality. And I don't have to identify with it. I can just like, is that true? You know, I can look at the thoughts and emotions as, you know, is that, is that the absolute truth? Whatever it may be, you know. I want some ice cream, or I'm a terrible person, or wow, I'm having a lot of fun, or I'm feeling sad, or whatever, all these things. And we can say, are these absolutely true? No, they're not absolutely true. And, you know, if I, if I believe them, and if I get into them, well, what's, what's the result? You know, we're looking here in Nishopanisha, what's the result? If I believe this, what's the result? Okay, well, if I believe these thoughts and if I embrace this emotion, you know, then I'm really going to have a rough time. 
And what would I, suppose I don't. Suppose I just let it go. Oh, well, then I'd be peaceful and happy. Okay, so I'm just going to let it go. And these thoughts and emotions, they're, they're going to go through us like waves. So Krishna says in the 14th chapter, verses 22 to 25, one who does not hate illumination, attachment, and delusion when they appear, nor long for them when they disappear, knowing that the modes alone are active, but remain always neutral. So we remain neutral. We're the observer, and we just, you know, they really don't have anything to do with us. So this takes some practice, like Arjuna says to Krishna, Chanchalahimana Krishna, the mind's very, uh, it's like wind. And Krishna says, by suitable practice and by detachment, one can conquer the mind. And instead, what we should do is we should engage the mind in thinking of Krishna, and thinking of how Krishna is the purifying wind, and thinking about how Krishna is the sounds in ether, and thinking about how Krishna is our ability and our intelligence. We can engage the mind in thinking of Krishna. We can engage the mind in thinking of Krishna's pastimes. And then the mind becomes our friend. And then these random thoughts may come in. We, we, simply, uh, we don't pay any attention to them. We don't hate them, but we don't even pay any attention to them. I've given the analogy sometimes that when we were in India, in the Vrindavan area, so there's all these monkeys, and they're very troublesome. So if, we, if you feed the monkeys, they'll become more troublesome. And nor do you want to kill the monkeys, but you want to you go on with your business. You, you let them go past, and they have their own their own business. Okay, so is that all right for a, a very short answer? Okay, so I think we need to end here. Yes? We are at time. I guess that's okay. So thank, thank you yes, very much. Thank you so much. Wow, all in one. <laughs> really, really, really appreciate it. <laughs> thank you so much for engaging me in service. Ishapanishad ki jai. Thank you. 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 Thank you.